largest book in all of scripture, uh, the book of Psalms. And Psalm 1 and 2, as we were saying before, as we've entered into, lean into this book, the beginning to understand it, is that if you can understand uh, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, then therefore you can actually understand the book of Psalms. There's a place to be said that the whole entire book of Psalms is structured in such a way that the first two here are a preface or an entry point in which they're structured so that the rest of the Psalms follow from this. That the rest of all of the poetic uh, Psalms that are connected are connected to these two premises, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. Now we have seen Psalm 1, the blessed man. The man who is truly blessed. And the phrase is, he prospers in all his ways. And that itself, that, that, that predicate given to him that he would prosper in all his ways is foreign to us. It's weird. No one prospers in all their ways, but everyone wants to always be successful and prosper. And so that's presented to us. And now, in Psalm 2, we're going to see something different but very similar in not only the blessed man, but now an anointed man. Psalm 2 is this. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Yet he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king in Zion, my holy hill. You see the antithesis. There is a, <clears throat> a strong stance that they're standing against the Lord. And the Lord is saying, very well, but I have a man who is standing for me. It's a battle line. It's a war. It's all the problems of our life. He says this, I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage. And the ends of the earth will be your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish by the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Yet, blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. Do you see how we ended, how we began? Blessed. Are all those who take refuge in Him. When we were first introduced or invited to the concept of what if we could be blessed? What if we could be like the blessed man? 
And we're introduced to another man, an anointed man, and then invited. Not just introduced, but invited to say, therefore go on and be blessed. Find yourself in him. Blessed are all who find him to be their fortress, their great reward, their inheritance. Blessed are all who are in him. I saw an uh, interview a while back. Uh, it was an interview in um, an Irish TV show, actually, in which a uh, British comedian uh, was being interviewed, uh, Stephen Fry. And uh, I've only seen him sometimes on TV. Uh, I, think, I think the show is called Top Gear. It's a car show. Uh, and he and a few guys would just um, be paid a lot of money to drive expensive cars and do everything every other guy would like to do when they're working all week. Uh, so instead of that, you watch the show, and it's pretty fun. Yeah, and it's entertaining, and he does a great job. Um, well, he was being interviewed, and he's toward the end of his career. He's pretty famous, at least especially more in the, uh, the UK. Uh, and the man asked him, as he asks all the time in this particular interview, uh, all these famous people he asks, he says, Now, um, what would happen uh, if you were permitted uh, to stand uh, before God at the pearly gates? What would you say to him? Which is an amazing interview to ask. Uh, when you're asking celebrities, it's a very weird question uh, that people don't normally do with celebrities. You think of that more maybe in a religious show or something. And so this man asks him, what would uh, you say if you were able to stand before God at the pearly gates? What would you say? Now, like a lot of media elites, he's an atheist, uh, kind of goes with the territory. Muslims are in Pakistan and Hollywood has atheists. But he said this, how uh, dare you, he said he would say this to God, how dare you create a world in which there is such misery that is not our fault. It's not right. He, he was indignant in the video. It's not right. It's not right at all. It's, it's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who created the world which is so full of injustice and pain? It's not right. That's a very blasphemous, high-handed approach to God. And he's completely confident saying this, with all the confidence in the world, saying, how dare you, God, make this world this way? And that's constantly um, an indictment against uh, Christianity. It's called theodicy. It's called um, the problem of evil. Is, is that it's, there's so much evil in the world, why does God permit it to happen? The whole book of Psalms answers that question. Little would he know, or many perhaps, that it is not a corner issue for us as Christians. It is not something we keep in our back closet that we don't like to talk about. The reality that God's all good and powerful but yet there's evil in the world, and that's a problem. Let's not talk about it. No, the largest body of literature in all of Scripture, the Psalms, addresses that point in detail. For the question is this. If God is all good, He should desire to prevent evil, 
And if God is all-powerful, he should be able to prevent evil. Therefore, that if God is all-powerful and all-good, there should be no evil. Yet at the very beginning of the Psalms, we're introduced to this. Everyone who is good will be blessed. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit at the seat of scoffers. He will not be moved. He will be blessed. He will flourish like a tree that cannot be changed. Yet the wicked are not so, we're told. They will fly away like the dust. They are given to vanity. They will be judged. Yes, but here's the problem. When I open my eyes and I look at the world, that doesn't seem to be true. And if you think that way, like Stephen Fry might, the psalmist would say, keep reading. That's the point. It's not as though a modern problem of our enlightened age is to say, oh, there's a problem of evil in the world. Of course there's a problem of evil in the world. The psalm is starting off by saying, we should all be blessed if we are good. But how come it always is the ones who are most vicious, the ones who are most corrupt, the ones who are the most evil prevail? How come it is always the weak and lowly and the gentle are taken advantage of? How come? Doesn't it seem odd? And then the very second part of the psalm goes on in Psalm 2 to say, why are there evil nations? Why is there oppression? Why is there wickedness and injustice all across the world? But instead of asking the question, why is there evil in the world? Psalm 2 points in an entirely different direction for the same problem. The question is this. Why, God says, do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain against the Lord? That's the question. Coming out from not a rebellious, atheistic, elite, social class Hollywood thinking of raising your fist to God and saying, why would you? The real question is from the top down in which the psalm says, why are you rebelling against me? And here we are. Every psalm addressing that question in some way or another. For Psalm 73, Asaph says this, now I was envious, this is a psalm, and you'll find this throughout. I was envious of the arrogant. I saw their prosperity of the wicked. They scoff. Does that sound like Psalm 1? And they speak malice. And their mouths are against heaven. And Asaph in seven, Psalm 73 says, I don't get it. It doesn't make sense. How come all the wicked are able to get away with it? How come all the evil are able to prevail? This is the question asked throughout the whole psalm. How come the preface of all the psalms, which are seeming to be true and make sense, that the good should prevail and the evil should be judged, and that all the nations of the earth should not raise their fists against God, and that God should be good and bring righteousness across all the land, how come it is the case that when I look it doesn't seem to be the case? What is the problem of evil? 
The reverse rejoinder of God is that, no, 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 not why is there evil in the world. He flips it to say, why do the nations rage against the Lord and take counsel together? You see, the rebellious nations of Psalm 2 sound very familiar to the wicked people in Psalm 1. For in Psalm 1, they take counsel together, the wicked, that is, they sit and they talk about doing evil, and they stand, and they do sinful things, and a righteous man or a blessed man would not take counsel with them. But yet in Psalm 2 we find all the nations, the United Nations, maybe a league of nations, coming together to take counsel together to say, how can we dethrone Yahweh? That is, it seems like the very same seat or chair of counsel that we were guarded to not walk by in Psalm 1. And it's all vanity. In Psalm 1, the wicked are vain. Their wickedness is a blowing of the chaff of the wind. All the dust, all their things are just nothing more than God blowing them away in vanity. And that is exactly how you find the wicked in Psalm 2. All the wicked nations were told, why would you conspire and plot in vain? Why would you think you could resist God? And it says, particularly that God sits above them and laughs. The image of pure vanity. There is no way that the nations could rage. There is no way anyone could raise their hand against God and resist His will or power. See, we subsist in Him, but He subsists of Himself. That is, the only way, as one theologian, Van Til, once said, the only way you could ever slap God in the face is if you sat on his lap. The only way you could ever rage, the only way you could ever rebel is because he sustains your life. So he laughs. Pure vanity of wickedness. If God is so powerful then, why does he simply just not stop? Why doesn't he just stop all the wickedness in this world? That's the question. That's what the Psalms are wrestling with. You see, the, it's one way to look at it logically, like God's all powerful and he's all good. Then why, if he couldn't stop it and he desired to stop it, why doesn't he stop it? That's one thing. You can look at that logically. It's another thing when you lose a loved one. It's another thing when you suffer tragedy. It's another thing when you are set aside with wickedness, when you are oppressed by wickedness, you see. It's not just so much an argument or a way to think. See, the point of the Psalms is they are written out of that despair. David all the time is saying, there's thousands of people surrounding me. I'm here for the Lord and they are here for wickedness. Why are they oppressing me? Why are they fighting me? Lord, are you for me? See, all these Psalms are not just theoretical. It's not just theology. These are people who are living in the world in which they do not see the realities of what actually has been said. That God is good, He is wise, and righteousness should prevail. Yet in throughout our life, we are left to poetry, which is the deep language of the soul. It's, it's more than just an argument. It is a poetic emotional weeping or rejoicing expression in the midst of the vicissitudes of this life in which show us that there is a flux, there is a not appropriate balance of what should be right and what should be wrong and parsed out as clearly as the day is from the night. That is what we want and we don't live in that. We live in the world of gray. We live in the world of wicked oppression in the midst of goodness.
darkness in which we wonder, Lord, why do you not just blow them away? Like you said in Psalm 1. Why, if they are dust, could you not just go? And that question, the uncomfortableness and the pain of that question, if you have not asked that, and if you have not felt that, you will read these Psalms, and you won't understand them at all. And they'll be boring to you. And they'll seem disconnected. And it'll just be like a guy talking. But when you realize, why is he talking the way he's talking? Go back to the most deepest painful thing you've ever felt in your life. And then start at Psalm 1. And don't stop till 150. And then you understand what's going on. For God is a great king. He's not only a great king in his goodness, that is, he would have a desire to prevent evil. And he's not only a great king in his power, that he would have the ability to stop evil at any moment. But he's also a great king in his wisdom, his providence, in that he is able to guide evil toward a greater good. Knowing that, Everything else makes sense. If you understand that, and you've meditated that down to the depths of your soul, you are able to stand against anything that could be counter to God's righteousness, any suffering or heartache, to know this. Yes, he is good. Yes, he's powerful. But he is also immensely wise. That there is a wisdom of God, a providential foresight, in which he is able to take all the vicissitudes of your life and bring them about for good. And what is the greatest of all goods? For his own glory. Because if he is most glorified, then heaven will be heaven. If he gets glorified, you get happy. If you want to be blessed, you have to behold the glory of God. And for you to behold the glory of God, sometimes in God's creation, if you want to crack an atom, and find the glory or the power in there. It has to fuse or fission. And the same things with the sufferings of this life. That there is something God is doing. Even though he could just go. And he could just stop all the evil. He's permitting it to pass. So that a greater light. A greater glory. And a greater blessing. Would be had at the end of the age. That is there is a reason, though not perfectly clear, definitely still very rational and actually something you can put your two feet and stand on in the midst of any particular suffering or trial. That God is not only all good or all powerful, but he is all wise. You stand on that wisdom and the Psalms become a book of wisdom. That's why we call them wisdom literature. Because it is showing you the, pe the reasons and the plans of God for everything. So the problem of evil is answered particularly by this wisdom. God's power is a good power. And his wisdom is also a good wisdom. And his wisdom is also a powerful wisdom. It's all connected. You can't separate it that way. We find it here in the verse in which the psalm particularly says. Of this decree. I will tell of the decree, that is, the powerful word of a king. 
which is all very good, and sometimes the decrees that come out of our particular government are okay, and some of them we would say, maybe not a capital D decree, maybe kind of stupid. But the reality is, with God, everything that proceeds from his throne is a perfectly wise decree. It's coming from the eternal throne of God who sees the beginning from the end. And so here, God's decree to this king in Psalm 2 is a decree, you are my son. Today, I have begotten you. I have birthed you. Today, you are my son. The depths of that statement caused me problems this week to fit it into a sermon. And when we get to the end of the sermon, and it feels like it ended abruptly, it's because I was put to an impossible task. And I will try my best in the next few minutes to explain what that means. The context of this is a royal psalm. There's many of them throughout the scriptures and the psalms. It's a psalm that deals with the kings of Israel. It's a psalm that would have been most likely sung on the day of a king's coronation, as there were successive lineages of kings throughout Israel or Judah. The day a new king was installed, many people suspect that this would be one of those psalms that would have been sung on that day of his coronation. It speaks particularly as the king being an adopted son. That is, he is begotten of God. He is, of course, not God, but kind of like God because he has a lot of authority and power like God. You see how it works. A king, kind of like God. God's the great king. He's a little king. You're like my little son. You're not actually the real king, but you're kind of like a king. I've begotten you, O king of Israel. And he's anointed. Anointed is the day in which the king is smeared with oil. In the Old Testament, anything that's smeared with oil is given a particular specialness. It's, it's a symbol of being uniquely owned by God. It is God's thing. Uh, when God anoints something in the tabernacle, that's God's table. That's God's uh, altar. That's God's uh, fire pit. And when God smears a king, that's his guy. This is my king. I've anointed him. And he's also my son. And so it would have been sung on those days. There's many coronation psalms. They would all relate to the lineage of the great king David and all that came after him, from Solomon to King 3 to King 4. It all begins with first, or 2 Samuel 7.14. God promised David and said, I shall be to him, your lineage, your child, I shall be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. That's what this psalm is echoing to. The beginning promise given to the greatest king in Israel was David. That the promise is, David, all of your children that come after you that would rule like you in your kingdom, they're going to be mine. They're going to be my sons. And so therefore, every time a king was anointed and installed as coronation, this psalm was sung to say, remember the decree. God always said that the king of Israel would be his, his own very son. It's a reminder, every time a new king was installed. And so there was David, there was Solomon, there's 20 more other kings Rehoboam, Abijah, Asa, Jehoshaphat, and so on. Now, 
There's three at the end. We understand a little of the history. This psalm is mysterious and beautiful. There was Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and Zedekiah. The last king of Israel, rather Judah, was Zedekiah. That is, as we know today, when I read the newspaper, I don't see king of Israel such and such decided to do this at United Nations. It's over. There is no king of Israel. Zedekiah was the last one. 2,600 years ago, actually. That's when it was over. Babylon came in and took him out of the city of Jerusalem. They starved him and everyone in it. But they made a breach in the wall, we're told in 2 Kings 25. With the last king of Israel, Zedekiah, which means the Lord's my righteousness. And he broke through the wall and tried to run away from the Babylonian armies. But the armies found him, caught him, tried him, and condemned him. They sentenced him. What they did is they put all of his sons before him. His sons. The sons of the king who is the son of God. And all the other sons of God that could come from the king are slaughtered before his eyes. We're told in 2 Kings. Zedekiah had to watch every one of his sons who could have been the lineage of this prophecy in Psalm 2 as also sons of God slaughtered. That is, we're done. The Babylonians say the lineage has been extinguished. And then right after they slaughtered all of his sons, the last thing he saw was all his sons being killed. They gouged out his eyes. And they took him to Babylon to be a slave and a trophy for war. Okay. These psalms were compiled during that exile in the 500s, in the 400s. That is, the form in which they have for us. That is, the reason Psalm 1 is there and not Psalm 50. Why is Psalm 1 the front? Why did they make this one? The one we just read, Psalm 2, the front of the whole book of Psalms. When that decision was had, as best we know, it was during that time in which the king was a servant of Babylon, in which all those in Israel were slaves in a foreign land, in which there was no Israel. There was no nation. There was no kingdom. The time that these psalms were compiled. In the order that we receive them today. Why? Would you lead this way? Why in the midst of that? With the very fact that you know. That this psalm is not. It's explicitly not true. All his children were slaughtered, and there is no king in Israel. Why would you put that at the front door of the book of your Psalms? Why would you put Psalm 2, a coronation psalm, which celebrates Israel and her king and boasts of nothing less than world domination? 
At the front of your book of Psalms. Serving as a preamble to every other poem. Serving as a vestibule to this mansion of poetry of 150 rooms. Why would that be your front door? Why would you say, oh by the way, our king rules the world. When you have no king, you have no nation, and you're putting this book together while you're slaves. Do you see the problem of evil? Do you see that when people say, I don't know why, because modern American, I only get to eat four times a day, that there's so much evil in the world, and I shake my fist at God, you know nothing of the Psalms. You know nothing of God's word. Know nothing that this is exactly the very point of the whole book. That Psalm 2 is a glaring reality to say, is God good? And is he powerful? And are his promises true? Is the king of Israel the king of the world? In the midst in which it is most not true, this psalm emerges. Perhaps it is composed in such a way as to not be a contradiction. Perhaps it is composed in such a way as to be a contemplation. Blessed is the man who meditates, contemplates the law of God day and night. Therefore, the next psalm says, now think about this. Here's a psalm for you. The king of Israel will rule the world. And as you read that, you look around the ziggurats of Babylon and say, it doesn't appear to be so. Contemplation. Perhaps it is a prophetic psalm sung from the depths of God's divine counsel. The second Corinthians 2 says, no one knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man inside him. And so he says, no one knows the thoughts of God except for the spirit of God relating what he thinks. And therefore we have a collection of prophetic psalms which are prophetic words relaying the very mind of God. The decree, that is, that God should respond to all the evil in the world, not by wiping it out, but by redeeming the world through His Son, to the redound of His glory. That is, the sonship in this psalm only makes sense when it is understood in the sonship of God Himself. So here is the question to consider. If you could empty your mind of all things and start all over, it's not hard to imagine. All you have to do is look at a few, a few week old. And what I want you to do this morning is nothing more than this. I want you to look at your hand. Because you know how they look at their hands. It's really weird. They just look at them. Then later they're like, man, that's mine. I get to do this. Before they just think they're floating there. Look at their hands. They're like, oh my gosh, that's... Whoa! Right? Like, I'm going to try pastorally to enter into that with you. So here's my question. Why? Why do we have ten fingers? Okay? What I'm asking then, not really is why we have ten fingers. We have ten fingers because they're here. I'm saying, why in God's mind did he choose to make us with ten fingers? And of course we all know the answer is because there's ten commandments in the Bible. You weren't supposed to laugh at that. 
We know because there's Ten Commandments in the Bible, and we're, the, the, the moral law is written upon our heart, and, uh, and we're supposed to exude the, the will of God into our life, and so that law which is written upon our heart extends out to our hands in all ten ways. Well, that's easy then. So why do we have two eyes, though? That's the question, see? Well, of course we have two eyes because there's only two great commandments, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, and love one another as ourselves, with our soul, mind, strength. I'm sure, I'm sure you knew that. But then why do we only have one mouth? Well, God didn't give us two mouths, of course, because we know the mind of God. And the mind of God is that in uh, James, uh, it says that you should not uh, be double-tongued or double-speaking. You should speak simply and purely. Don't gossip or slander or lie like the commandments say. You should speak purely. That is, you should uh, be like a a spring of fresh water. See, James says uh, we should not bring blessings and cursings out of the same mouth. Right? Only one mouth, which is producing fresh water. You don't have a spring of water that produces fresh water and salt water at the same time. That would be absurd. Of course, that's why we only have one mouth. And so after the service, when I'm over there drinking my coffee, feeling like I have accomplished something, you're going to come to me and say, Now, Pastor Matthew, are you sure that's right? Like, do you think you might be out on a limb a little bit? And you know what I would say? You're right, I'm just guessing. It's an informed guess. There's reason biblically for it. But I don't know what God's mind was. Perhaps we will find out why he made us exactly this way. Why not? He made us with an imagination to consider others. Thank you, Marvel movies. Why did he do it this way? But giving us the potentiality to think other. But here's one more. Why do we beget? Why... Does life emerge from our loins? Why does it come from our own nature? Why do the storks not drop them from above? Or why don't children emerge like flowers from the ground? He makes other life come out that way. Now see here why we'll pause and say, this one is not a guess. The other ones, I'm just guessing. This one is different. John 1.14 says, The word of God became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the Only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Monogenes, only Son, unique Son, no other Son like this Son. See, that one is not a guess. That one is expressly told that the subsisting of sonship is actually part of the nature of God. God doesn't have ten fingers. He's not a man with body parts or passions. But God is sonship. That one matches very well. That one is not a guess at all. To the very nature of God is begetting of a son eternally. That he actually came into the world 
and not the only one real Son before the beginning, the eternal Son. That is, before there were ten fingers, before there were flowers and plants, there was always the Son, the real subsisting eternal Son. And then when we told this in Genesis that Adam was made or begotten in the image of God, and then Adam gave birth to a son who was named Seth, who was called the image of Adam. This imagery is allowed in Genesis, that we are to see ourselves as bearing images to one another, analogous and similar to one another in our horizontal nature, because God has made that analogy connected to us in the way he made us. Because it mirrors what actually is real, which says God is eternally begotten Son. Before time was, there was the Logos, and that Logos is the monogenes, the only unique begotten Son of God. And with that being said, the whole psalm makes sense. See, my daughters right now like playing a card game uh, called Go Fish. They like it a lot. Because God made our minds so beautifully is that we always are trying to find analogies. We are um, pattern recognition machines. And they love it because if they can get two fish that look similar and put those cards next to each other, they get a dopamine hit like you and I couldn't even dream of. (laughs) They love it. They love it. And so we play Go Fish and it's fun. The only problem is, and I've told them the rules to be fair, you're supposed to hide your cards. And they don't do that, you see. I divvy up the cards, they get their starfish and their dolphins, and all the cards are there, and of course I hold mine tight, and I look at them, but they lay them out on the table, and so I win every time. (laughs) And I say, Violet, you wouldn't happen to have a dolphin, would you? And then she looks around, she's not even sure, and I point to it, she's like, oh yeah, yeah. And she gives it to me. And I say, thank you. Then I go to Lily. Now, you wouldn't happen to have a starfish. She's like, man, that is good. He's really good. And I take her starfish. You see, that is the Lord. All analogies, all likeness, it's in his mind. He can see all the cards. Now, see, we guess. I can say to the Lord, Lord, why do we have ten fingers? I think it's because of this. And he'll say, that's not what I was thinking. Go fish. (laughs) But you see, there is one moment in which the Lord laid his card down. And it was a card of the image of a son. And he said, now this one. This is a card that I want you to know about. have an eternally begotten son whom I love so much and I've made this whole world in one way for you to not travel through it without understanding by analogy something of a love for son or daughter who looks like you smells like you, talks like you walks like you and your whole heart Stends to them everywhere they go. The first time they leave on the school bus, it's as if you could die. He made the whole world that way. So that when in God's infinite wisdom, 
In Psalm 2, he decided to say, Now I will make a king, and he will be called the Son of God. That is to say, our children are not real sons or daughters. And the reason all the kings of Israel failed, you see, is because they weren't real sons of God. They were images and types. They could never feel the shoes. The reason it all went under is because it was never real. See, when I say to my daughter, do you have a dolphin? I'm saying, do you have a picture of a dolphin? I'm not saying, let's go swim with a real dolphin. When God says, he is my son, today I have begotten you. You are the king of the world. You will rule the nations with a rod of iron and no one will resist you. And we say, well that didn't seem to happen with all the kings of Israel. Of course it didn't, because that psalm is not about them. Just as the same way Psalm 1 is not about us. We are not the blessed man. We have not meditated on God's word day and night. Everything we do cannot absolutely prosper. We are wicked and sinners. And we are only sustained by God's grace. Despite all of our moral corruptions and failures. And is the same too for the kings of Israel. That is all of them were never really the son of God. That there was one only true eternal son of God. He incarnated himself through the world. Through the lineage of David. So that he might rise and reign. And say I will will rule the world. And that is the Christ we worship. He is the one who all these psalms are about. And you must understand when we say, well, what could it mean that God loves me? It's more real than the warm embrace of the deepest companion you'd ever know in this life. For God has made this whole world in such a way that you could even just try to understand the love he has for his son. And so when it says, for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son so that people would be saved. It is because he loves you that much. More real. More sonship. More love than our tiny little hearts could ever fathom. This is the love that rules the world. This is why God lets evil persist. So that everyone would stand in the glory of the love that God has for his son. And the love that he extends to all those who would find blessing in him and call upon the name of Jesus Christ and be saved. So let us pray. Father God, we know that this is true. Therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, rulers of the earth. Lord, we are told to serve the Lord with fear and trembling. Lord, we kiss your son. Lest you be angry and we perish by the way. For your wrath is kindled. But blessed are all those who find favor in you. Lord, we thank you that you have given us this love that we might kiss your son. Because he is an expression of your kiss toward us. Your love toward us. That is deeper than all the love that we've ever experienced in this life. Is only a card game.
a picture of what it is to be eternally loved in the Father and the Son. Thank you, Lord, for giving. Our petition and prayer as we close is that we might experience, not just know, but experience that love which surpasses understanding. Show us, Lord, please, how much you love us in your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please?